Well, amen. Thank you, choir, orchestra, worship leadership team, and leading us in that time of praise through song this morning. Let me say a couple things before we dig into our text this morning. Uh, One is, we had a great event yesterday with our men's ministry. I'm grateful for uh, those who served to put that together yesterday. We had a great time of fellowship, a great time of food, and a great time in the Word of God. Dr. Clayton Clore. Uh, from the Baptist College came and shared a word on leadership from 1 Timothy chapter 4, challenging men to be the leaders we're called to be. And so it was just a great time to gather together. I'm very grateful for our men's ministry team who put these events together and serve behind the scenes to um, impact the lives of the men in our church. And I just want to share the names of those guys who work on that team. There were other people involved in that in cooking yesterday and cleaning and all of that. But uh, here's some of our leadership team, Dustin Castells, Lance Bush, Terry Ellis, Caleb Duncan, Coach Wickham, Brandon Biddle uh, are members of that uh, leadership team that work uh, to help really minister to our men and our church family and how grateful I am for them and other volunteers who impact uh, the lives of our men uh, month after month. So I'm just grateful for uh, that ministry provided yesterday. Let me remind you of something that's taking place next weekend. Next weekend is Memorial Day. And so what we do on Memorial Day weekend uh, typically is we just do one <clears throat> combined worship service at 10.30. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is what we're going to do next week. So 10.30, we'll have our combined uh, worship service, no connect groups. There will be children's ministry for the uh, five-year-olds and down, kindergarten and down, I think it is, uh, four, four-year-old and down. I can never keep track of that. And so there will be child care for that age group, child ministry for that age group, and then everybody else will come into big church, and we'll just have us a good time together next week as we worship together. You know, typically I take that Sunday off and usually go back to Georgia and see family. That's one of those times of the year I do that, but this year I'm not going to do that. So I'll be here next week, and I get to preach just one service. That's going to be awesome uh, to be with y'all next week, and so I look forward to that time together. We're actually the next week going to be moving uh, Savannah, Uh, to New York uh, to be with Taylor and so uh, that's going to be something we'll do the next week so because of that I'm going to be here on Memorial Day and so I look forward to that next week so please uh, keep that uh, in mind for next week now Dustin's going to come back at the end of the service and say some more about this but there's a youth fundraiser going on today there's a spaghetti lunch made available and so I know you'll want to participate in that that way you don't have to cook. You can Your lunch today that you pay for actually is an investment in the kingdom of God. So, I mean, what better sales pitches than that? So, uh, you can stay and get a spaghetti plate after lunch. There's also a cake auction that's going to be taking place, and those cakes are out there in the foyer. You'll take a look at them. Don't go out there now and get you a piece of cake during the... Uh, just wait till afterwards, and you can bid on that. All of that's going to go to help support uh, the kids going to uh, student camp this year. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dig in and continue our study, the book of Hebrews. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. We're now in chapter 5. And for those who are our guests, we've been really digging into the depths of this incredible book, the book of Hebrews. And so let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning and feed us from His Word. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful I am to be here today. How thankful I am. For my church family, Lord, as I was just thinking this morning as I walked across the parking lot into the building here, how excited I am to be here today and just to be with my church family. I love coming. I love to spend time 
with the people that you allow me to serve you with. And Lord, I thank you that we get to come here and gather in your name, making everything about you, exalting you, glorifying you. And Lord, I pray, Father, for you to please now open our minds and our hearts to receive the word you have for us. And please help me to preach, Lord. I can't do it without you. I need the ability that you supply. So I pray for clarity of mind and clarity of speech and delivering the word of God with accuracy and with compassion, with clarity and conciseness, with authority. And I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to receive the word you have for us. And I just commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is my text for today. Now, remember, the recipients, the original recipients of this letter were ethnic Jews who had received the gospel of Jesus. And they were in some area, we're not really sure where they were located, where this letter went to. But we do know that from the context of this letter that these Christians were involved in persecution. They were being persecuted. They were meeting with opposition from their culture. And because of the opposition from their culture, there was this temptation for them to stop following Jesus and slide back into Judaism, which was more accepted by their culture. It's kind of like the times we're in today. To be a Christian, you're going to face some level of persecution, even though I hate to even say that because our brothers and sisters around the world are actually dying for their faith. Uh, those of us here in America are starting to experience some level of persecution. There are people who are being passed over for promotions. There are people who are losing their jobs. There are people who are being canceled because they stand firm on biblical truth. So we're meeting opposition. That should not surprise us because our Lord Jesus warned us of that as uh, did his apostles. And so these early Christians were being encouraged to stay faithful to Jesus Christ because he is superior to Judaism. He is superior to angels, to Moses, to the law, to the tabernacle, to the temple. He is superior to the uh, Arianic priesthood. He is greater than the universe. He is greater than any being in existence. He is called here in this book and revealed as creator, sustainer, the exact image of the invisible God. He is a display of the glory of God. He is savior and he is sovereign. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. The first three verses of chapter one, the great prologue of this book show all these things about Jesus. And so he's greater than anything or anyone. So they're being taught Stay faithful to Jesus. Stay faithful to Him. Now, specifically, we're entering into a section in the book of Hebrews that deals with how that Jesus Christ is the great high priest. And so he spends a good deal of time working through that. And so we're not going to give all the goods today about the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's going to come as we go through these next few passages, particularly over in chapter 7. Also, we'll deal with that. Into chapter 9, we'll deal with it as well. And so we, we just, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to his priesthood. But I want to talk today specifically about this subject. The great high priest is the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation. 
Now, have you ever really kind of investigated our, our culture, maybe in recent times, and try to figure out what people are pursuing these days? What are the hopes that people have these days? Now, that's going to vary with age groups. Some who are in the preteen years, their hope is to one day get their driver's license. <laughs> they, they just want that driver's license. That's all they can think about at that point in their life. I remember that. I can remember back in those days, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. For some, it is the hope of being able to finish college, to get a college education. They just desire that. That's a goal they have. That's, a, that's something they're longing for. Others, it's to have a career that they truly love that they could get up every morning and really enjoy going to work. They just want a career that they love. For some, it's to have good relationships. They just want to have some people in their lives they can count on. They want to build that and cultivate that. So they just have that friend group they can do life with. They just want those relationships. Some want a following, especially in the younger generations today. There's this there's this quest to have people follow them, have a platform, be an influencer. And, and uh, boy, that can be a dangerous uh, hope because it can disappoint you in a hurry. It can wreck you in a hurry because you're, you're constantly trying to please people, please your followers. I'm going to tell you what I've learned early on in life. You can't please people. <laughs> no matter what you do, you can't please people. Some, they just want a family. If I can just have a family, the right type of family, a good healthy family, some want to make a difference in someone else's life. But all these things are some of the things that people are going for, and that's their hope in life. But in stark reality, the greatest need we have and the greatest hope that we should have is to have a relationship with God and to have eternal life. And that's the greatest need that every human being has to be right with God, to be in a true relationship with Him that results in worship and service and obedience in all of life. We're in desperate need of a life that praises Him, that glorifies Him, that other people around us could learn of the greatness of God by the way we live and, and what our mission is in life. This is the desperate need of all humanity. That's the primary need that we have. But we're made in the image of God, and none of us will ever be whole without Him. We're going to have a huge void in us without knowing the Lord. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are complete in Him. We are whole. We are made perfect in Him. Unredeemed people are distant from God. They are without hope. They are without the promises of God. They are without life, Ephesians 2 says. But a relationship with God allows us to experience eternal life. Now, here's the thing. Even if people come to this conclusion in life, even if they could do so, that the Holy Spirit enables people to be able to come to this conclusion and see this. But even when someone comes to the conclusion that they need God more than anything, we can't get to Him on our own. We're in an impossible situation on our own. There is a gap between us and God we can't overcome. We need a representative to bridge the gap between us and God. God established an order of priests 
who were to represent him to people and represent people to him. Uh, they were uh, appointed to serve him and lead people to worship him. But just like all other human beings, this order of priesthood were flawed by their own sin. They were limited by their own limitations. They were people who would die. So their priesthood would end. They could not be counted on long term. So God appointed an ultimate high priest. And the writer of Hebrews is really writing about that and takes a large section of this letter to explain that Jesus Christ is the ultimate mediator between God and man. He is the one who bridged the gap between God and us to, to bring us to Him, to have a relationship with Him, the one who is our greatest need. So that's kind of what we're talking about here in these verses. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5, and here's what the Word of God says. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. The first four verses are describing the qualifications of the Arianic priesthood. Then he changes gears in verse 5 and following. He starts talking about another high priest, the Lord Jesus. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, that is God the Father, who said to him, that is Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, now this is referring to Jesus again, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The main idea of this message is this. Eternal salvation is available through Jesus the great high priest. Jesus is superior to the priesthood. He himself is the great high priest. The writer of Hebrews makes this case and again begins describing here, first off, the duties and qualifications of the high priest. Now, last week, I talked to you for a little bit about how the Lord Jesus is the great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he enables us to come boldly before the throne of grace or to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need, the Word of God says. So what that means is he is the one who helps us in this life. He helps us overcome temptation. He helps us to be faithful to him. He helps us to live in obedience to him. 
We see this also in chapter 2, verse 18. But now we come to a, a section of Scripture that also emphasizes the fact that not only does our great high priest help us right now, he's the very source of eternal life for us. Now look with me in verse 1 as we take a look at these qualifications for the, the priest, the high priest. For every high priest, verse 1 says, taken from among men, so he's going to have to be chosen from the human race. He has to be from the human race to represent the human race. He is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God. You see what he's doing here? He's representing God to man, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So he's appointed to represent the human race. He's going to help us in um, the worship of God and the relationship with God. And he does so by offering gifts and sacrifices. Now, gifts here would probably be uh, offerings like thanksgiving offerings, which are offerings given to God, admitting and recognizing and giving credit for all the provision that God has given in life. And so it's this thank offering to him. Fellowship offerings were given to have fellowship with God. Dedication offerings were given as an act of committing ourselves to devotion to God uh, in that uh, ancient time. The sacrifices obviously were blood sacrifices for the atoning of sin. Notice what verse 3 says. This high priest, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin and also on behalf of the people. And here's why. Verse 2 tells us because he was wrapped up in the same weaknesses that the people he served were wrapped up in. Notice the Word of God says in verse 2 that he was subject to weakness. The word subject there is a word that meant to be encompassed by. It was used to refer to hanging a millstone around the neck or a chain that would wrap up someone. And so this high priest himself is encompassed and weighed down and chained up by his own weaknesses. That word weakness we dealt with last week in chapter 4, verse 15, and it speaks of our ineffectiveness. It speaks of the points of temptation we have in our lives. So he too was bound up in those things so that he could have compassion on those who were going astray. Now that word compassion means to have a balanced feeling in other words, the high priest was not to be indifferent to sin. You see, God takes sin serious. I mean, I mean He does. There, there are consequences to sin. So we're not indifferent to sin. The high priest should not be, but he should not be harsh either. And, and he has this balanced sympathy because he himself is prone to weakness. He's prone to, to wonder. That, that word astray that you see there in, in that verse. That, that word is not really referring to high-handed sin. What I mean by that is when we say, oh, I know what the Word of God says, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. That's a high-handed sin. There's a, there's a lot of consequences with that high-handed sin. This is, a, this is a type of straying that occurs when uh, our thoughts and our habits cause us to become very neglective of the word of truth, and we slip off into sin, and we allow things to creep into our lives that, that, that just get in there because we're not paying attention to our spiritual life as we ought to. See, every, every ancient Jew would be learning the law of God. That's what they did from, a child, from childhood up. 
What would happen is they'd get too distracted by other things and they would not focus on the Word of God and find themselves drifting off and away from the Lord and not being involved in truth and allowing sin to creep in to their lives. And I, th I thought about this a great deal last week and just begin to kind of think through that. And I'm, I, I noticed something about how people are. I've learned a few things over 27 years of pastoral ministry. I've learned a few things about us as the people of God. Sometimes we can be very indifferent about our own sin. You know, we rationalize that, make excuses for that, and, but then we can be very harsh toward other people's. We can attack them and be very critical of, of them, and we judge them to a standard we do not want to be judged ourselves. We're not compassionate as we ought to with one another. I, I would probably imagine in this group today that the biggest sins that we're involved in is the sins I'm just describing, and that is how we go astray. There could be some in this room right now in high-handed sin. But many of us may be allowing sin to creep into our lives because what we've done is we've just neglected our walk with God. We've neglected the discipline of following Jesus. And we've allowed things to creep into our, our lives. Sin that we actually, um, that we just accept, just becomes accepted by the people of God, like, like jealousy. Jealousy is something that creeps into a person's life out of pride and is jealous of another person's blessings or if they get more attention than we get or they get you know, the better areas of service than we do. And so we, we allow jealousy to creep in instead of just praising God for how he's blessed or honored this person or that person, thanking God for what he's allowed us to be able to do and what he's assigned us to do and trusting in his plan more than our own, we sometimes are consumed with jealousy. Sometimes it's gossip. Let's just, let's just get real here. I've said this for many years. In small towns, people love to gossip. Isn't that right? Amen or oh me. It's just the truth. So we, we gossip. And then here's one of my favorites. I just need to share this prayer request. You should pray about this. And they don't give a rip about praying for that person. Uh, usually what happens is they just want to that's the springboard to share whatever it is they want to share, some juicy little tidbit they've heard somewhere and they want to, want to say something about that. And, and so they'll, they'll do that. And, and so what happens is even among the people of God, we'll do that. We're, we'll get good at talking about each other or at each other, but not to each other. And so we'll gossip what I've also found out over almost 30 years of pastoral ministry is this. We rarely know all the details. It's rare we know all, we, we fill in a lot of gaps, jump to a lot of conclusions. We do that a lot. And we kind of inflate things and jump to conclusions and misrepresent. And, and then we begin to slander and gossip one another about one another, and here's what happens. And we don't even recognize that we've been inadvertently used as a pawn of Satan. And Satan uses that to hinder the mission of the church. I can tell you time after time over the years where there are people that, are, that have been indirectly affected and resistant to the gospel because of gossip. So the enemy 
we'll use that. And, and we just let it linger so often. There is the sin of not loving in a Christian manner. And of course, the two things I've just described are really basically not loving people well. We don't understand biblical Christian love the way we should. And we don't think it's a big deal. We just, we blame it on our personality. We blame it on our attitude. We blame it on our upbringing. We blame it on our heritage. All these things we blame it on. And, and it's just basically this. We won't bend our will to God's <laughs> and learn to love in the way that we're called to love. But we get <clears throat> so often very critical with each other. Now, let me tell you something else I've learned. Now, this proves that God can even teach a hard-headed boy from the hills of North Georgia. Because I've learned this over the years. We studied last week one of the richest truths about the Christian life, and that is that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Remember, the word come there is present tense verb. You keep on coming. We should stay at the throne of grace. Because I'll tell you what I've discovered. The longer I've walked with God, the more I know how much I need His grace every day. I need Him to help me live the way I need. I need His constant mercies for my failures. I need to live at the throne of grace. And I'll tell you something else I've discovered about that. When you live at the throne of grace, you are more gracious to others. You ever known that? You show me somebody that spends a lot of time at the throne of grace, that person will be more gracious to people around them. People who don't spend much time at the throne of grace, they're not very gracious with others. They're the Pharisees of the churches. They're always concerned about their own ideas and man-made rules and these sorts of things. Above, They've raised them up above the Word of God. They've not been to the throne of grace like they ought to. They're not very gracious. And what we ought to do in times when people, even when, even when we're offended by people and they hurt us, what we should do is love them back and keep loving them until they succumb to love. Pray for them. Bless them. Now, sometimes you have to talk to them. That's for sure. We ought to be able to have conversations. I, I respect people who will have a conversation with somebody about things. I really do. We're to be gracious. The high priest, he was not going to be able to minister well if he wasn't compassionate with those he was ministering to. And that's why he's to be qualified in that way. Now, we, what we do know is the priesthood got very corrupt. The Old Testament, we see how that took place. There was a lot of corruption among the priesthood. By the first century, the priesthood could be bought. The high priesthood could be bought. It was a, it was a position of power. I mean, it could be bought. I mean, that's how corrupt it had gotten. But these first four verses give us a description of what that, what that should look like. No one appoints themselves as high priest. That shouldn't be the case. God chooses them, but yet that's not what was happening in the first century. So then 
The writer of Hebrews switches gears and gets into chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, and he talks about the ultimate great high priest, the one who's perfect. He's perfect. He didn't, he didn't choose himself for this job. The Word of God tells us in verse 5 and 6 by quoting Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4, that he was chosen by God. He was chosen by the Father. And he was chosen to be the great high priest after the resurrection. That's what that first quotation there, Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 33 and 34, that very psalm is used there to, uh, to support the resurrection of Christ. So what we can gain here is that he's appointed as the great high priest after the resurrection. And notice what verse 6 says. It's quoting Psalm 110 and verse 4. You are a priest forever. Notice, you know, earthly priests, their, their reigns are going to end or their, their office is going to end some. They're going to die. They're going to get unable to fulfill that duty. But Christ, this great high priest, his office is forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, where does that come from? It's <laughs> out of the blue. You know, we start talking about Melchizedek again. He's that uh, mysterious figure that appears in Genesis chapter 14 after Abraham has rescued Lot, <clears throat> his nephew, and he encounters Melchizedek. And I'm not going to get into a whole lot of details about him today because there's a whole chapter 7. has got a whole bunch of details about him we're going to get into later. So I'm not going to spill all the goods today. We'll save it. But he was, um, he was a priest and a king. He was the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And he was called a priest of God Most High in verse 18 of chapter 14 in the book of Genesis. And his priesthood, his office is comparative to Christ. And we'll draw some of those conclusions out for you when we get to chapter 7. But I'll just say this for right now. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus is king and a priest. And we'll talk more about that. He is the ultimate king and the great high priest. Now, <clears throat> we're to a point in this text where I want to show you two things as we bring this thing to a conclusion. Two major points that we need to see. First, as our high priest, he submitted to suffering. That's what verse 7 and 8 teach. And there was a purpose for his suffering. The Lord Jesus, to be the one to bring us to God, had to live the human experience, and he had to become human at the same time, still remain God. It's the only way he could cover our sin. <clears throat> By the way, you ever thought this in your mind? Maybe you said it. Lord, you don't understand how hard it is to be a Christian. You ever, you ever said that? You know what you're saying? What we're saying when we say that is, <clears throat> you don't know how hard it is to obey and have to suffer because of obedience. <laughs> oh, the Lord Jesus Christ knows better than anybody, any human being. He suffered to obey. And that's what he came to earth to do. And he can help us in our suffering to obey. In verse 7, we see a description of what I mentioned to you last week, and that is the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what's happening here in verse 7 and 8. Let's take a look at this. Who in the days of his flesh, that's Jesus, his flesh, that means his incarnation here, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries, he's loudly crying out in prayer to the Father, 
and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in his omniscience understood obedience, but what this means is he experienced it. He experienced what it's truly like for a human being to implement obedience. So he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And then verse 9 says, and having been perfected, that is fully qualified uh, to be the sacrifice for our sins and the great high priest for our salvation. So he's praying. He's in the garden. Remember I told you last week how he was so distressed that the Word of God teaches us that it was, he was distressed to the point of death. Literally in his humanity, he was to the point of dying because of the, the distress that he was under in that moment. And he cried out in prayer. Now, he's not praying because he's afraid to die. That's not what he's, that's not what he's crying out to the Father about and saying, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What had so <clears throat> distressed the Lord Jesus was the thought of bearing the sin of the world, becoming sin for us, experiencing the propitiation, that is, to become the propitiation or to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, and so he, he cried out to the Father, but yet he submit his own desires to the will of the Father. And there was, after he left that garden, a resolve to complete what he had come to complete. Now someone might ask this question. It appears in this text that he, his prayer to be delivered from death was answered. But yet he went to the cross and he died. So what's that all about? Well, it, it speaks of this fact. His prayer was directly answered through the resurrection. He did not stay in the state of deadness, but rose again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ has also suffered once for sins, the just, the right, for the unjust, the, the, the uh, unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Look over in chapter 2, verse 17, real quick. The Word of God says this, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to to satisfy God's very righteous judgment toward our sin. Jesus had to do all of this. He submitted to suffering. And that leads us to the second thing here. Because he suffered, he also became our source of eternal salvation. The second thing I want to show you here is this. As our high priest, he became the source of eternal salvation, verse 9 and 10. The word perfected, you see there in verse 9, again, that means that he was fully qualified to be our Savior because he suffered. He obeyed in every way, submitted to the will of the Father. 
for our propitiation. And he became our, the author of eternal life, the source of eternal life, eternal salvation. Listen, there's nothing the Old Testament priests could do to establish an eternal salvation. Only the great high priest could do that. What we need more than anything is only available at one source, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We need eternal life, and it cannot come from any other source but Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. He's the source. And what he can do, no one else can. Listen, he can do for people what no one else can do and nothing else can do. What no amount of education can do, Jesus can do. What no amount of pleasure can accomplish, Jesus can accomplish. What no amount of money can buy, Jesus can accomplish. What no matter an amount of doing good can accomplish, Jesus has accomplished. And what Jesus gives in eternal life cannot be taken away. The Lord said in John chapter 10, verse 28, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There is a condition given on this eternal life in this text. This is not automatic. This salvation, this eternal salvation, it's available for all, but it's not automatic. The condition given here is obedience. It's faith. The word obey here is a word that's used in the New Testament every time but one to mean a sense of submitting to or submitting one's will, understanding, conduct, and allegiance to the will of another. It speaks of obedience at conversion. The Holy Spirit enlightens and draws. The Word of God is used to awaken people to the understanding of their lostness and their need for a Savior and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're drawn and there is to be an obedience to that gospel by surrendering to the gospel. Some do and some don't. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, describes some who do not. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and as those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel must be obeyed. It's, it's confession. It is repentance that's talked about here. It's obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to repent and believe, as Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says. It is obedience to the command preached by the Apostle Paul at Athens. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, where the Word of God says that He has commanded all men everywhere to repent. It is surrender to the salvation call of God. But then secondly, this obedience does not just refer to conversion. It means our whole Christian life. And listen, we're, we're called and saved to live our lives now for the Lord. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how much opposition, there's nothing in the Bible that says, listen, thus saith the Lordeth, if things get toughest, theneth, quitteth, followingeth, Jesuseth. It's not what it says. It, you, you just keep on following Him. The, the Word of God tells us what we should do 
is that we should not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 6, but verse 13 says, don't, don't you present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but you present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. So it means we go to war against our own sin and we pursue righteous conduct. The Bible says we're to pursue righteousness and godliness in the Word of God. Remember, the Lord Jesus is high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Priest and king. He's king. He's king right now in our lives. And he's also a coming king. Do you know we're not, we're not going to fit in in this world? I wish the modern church could get this message through our thick heads. We are not going to fit in in the world. We are not of this world. The Lord Jesus said the world will hate you because it hated me. John took up that theme also and said we shouldn't marvel if the world hates us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Paul said, we need to understand this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. We're going to not fit in in this world. We're citizens of another kingdom a kingdom that's coming. We're pilgrims just passing through. The writer of Hebrews kind of picks up this theme in chapter 11 and verse 10. He says, and this is what we should be waiting for. We're waiting for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We're longing for what the writer of Hebrews wrote about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. We're longing and looking for another kingdom. And that's why the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear since we're looking for a coming king and a coming kingdom. We need grace to stay faithful to our king right now in this life we're living. We ought to agree with the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 14, where he says... For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. This past week, Dr. Tim Keller died. He was founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Written many books. I've read many of his books. He was an apologist, um, a, think, a leading Christian thinker of our times. He died of pancreatic cancer on Friday. Uh, my social media feed's been filled with tributes to Tim Keller and, and on Twitter, and I watched this one video of him about two years ago after he'd already received the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. He's being asked by this interviewer 
a question. Uh, how would you answer and what would you say to young Christians that are living in this world today and all the troubles that they're facing and all the things going on? What would you say to them? I'm going to kind of paraphrase what he said, but he, he said this basically. If Jesus Christ really rose and was seen by over a hundred people and sent him back to heaven, if he really rose, which he did, everything's going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. He went on to say, not only is there going to be a resurrection of the redeemed, but the earth itself is going to experience a resurrection. You, you, you know that. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. One day, all the evil, all the suffering, all the hardships, all the difficulties that we face will be gone. And we will be with Christ forever. Everything's going to be fine. My King is coming. So let's be faithful to Him. Let's be faithful to Him. Will you be faithful to Him? Will you live for Him no matter how much opposition the culture throws our way? Well, we recognize that He has given us what we need more than anything else in this world, and that is eternal life. And He has promised to help us right now and give us everything we need to live life for Him right now for His glory as we live in light of the coming kingdom that's to be established. Will we be faithful to Him? Will we begin to live lives that, you know, the Bible tells us that we become a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, to proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what the Word says. So we just start living for Him we start making life about Him. We just want to honor and glorify Him. And we want to make Him known to the people in this community. And wherever God gives us influence, we want to make, we want to make Jesus known so that others can know Him and serve Him. That's what He has saved us to do. Now, will we do that? For some here today, it could be that you have never obeyed the gospel. You know the Spirit of God has enlightened you and you understand that you need Jesus and you've made every excuse and you've resisted and you've rationalized to yourself. You've even told yourself, well, I, you know, when I was you know, eight years old, I did this. And, but you can never really see a, a marked difference in your life the whole time you've been living on this earth. Maybe you recognize this. I am just flat not saved. Today, I need to call on Jesus to be my Savior. I need to surrender to the gospel. I need to repent and receive Him today. We're going to stand to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment, and you can just leave your seat and come to me up front here and just say to me, I, I want Jesus as my Savior today. We'll, we'll pray with you about that. So will you do it? The altar is open for us to come and pray, maybe just getting our lives back on track because, honestly, we're like... Verse 2 talks about we've strayed. We've, we've just lost sight of things. We've allowed stuff to creep into our lives. It's, 
hindered our fellowship with God. It's kept us from serving Him. It's hindered Christian relationships. We just need to repent and we just need to get right with Him today and be revived and renewed and begin to experience all that He has for us that we miss out on because we don't walk with Him each day. So the altar is open to come talk with Him. Maybe some need to unite with the church. However God's speaking, let's obey Him. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this message. Thank you for how you used it to speak to me. And forgive me for the times that I stray. And thank you, Lord, for the continual access to the throne of grace. And I pray, Lord God, that we live at that throne of grace and we're more gracious to each other and to people in general. I pray for us to stay faithful to you, Lord, and not become distracted and pulled away by the things of this world. But I pray we stay faithful to you knowing that our King is coming. And because Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Everything is going to be all right. So I praise you for that. May we rest in that comfort. I pray now for those that you're dealing with to be saved. I pray for them to obey the gospel. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please.